Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast presented by Zwift for the final GC relevant stage of the Vuelta from uh, I don't know why I put a Spanish accent on the R and from from Moral Zarzal to Puerto de Navacerrada. It is 182 kilometers long, featuring three category one climbs, two cat twos, the Puerto de Navacerrada, 10k is 7%, then the Puerto de Navafria, 10k is 5.5%, then the Morcuera climb, 9.2k is so I'm going to call it 7% descent, and then the Puerto de Cotos, 10.5 case, 5.6%. So none of them are savage climbs. None of them are 30-minute, 40-minute climbs. So like last year as well, if you remember Stage 20, where Bahrain and Ineos, where Ineos launched that big raid, the climbs had steeper sections in them. These are all quite consistent, quite steady, except for Morquera. Even that, it has one kilometer that's nine and a half percent, nothing like 12 percent. So, with Remco with a comfortable lead over Enric Mars of two minutes and I think through seven seconds and 508 on AU. So, the battle for the win was unlikely to be changed around on this stage. The big questions was are you so fifth, 50 seconds out of Lopez? Almeida, Aronsman, Rodriguez, O'Connor, Uran, Hindley, Menkes all locked in a battle of musical chairs. But Quickstep were active at the start, Benji, and that's sort of been their philosophy of the the Vuelta. It's been be active at the start, get the break you want, and then you don't have to do as much in the latter half of the stage. Exactly. There was a bit of a, a skirmish between riders trying to get in the breakaway and Quickstep trying to control the breakaway. We had a group of six that got up the road that Quickstep was relatively fine with. And Quickstep was kind of like controlling tempo in the peloton towards the first kilometer day. And the breakaway, the first six-man group formed before the first kilometer day, the Puerto de Nova Serrada. Six men in that breakaway, Rob Stannard and Xandro Murice, both for Alpecin. Rob Stannard, not Entirely close in KOM, but close enough to still compete today if he gets over the top of each climb first versus a Carapaz, for example. Guglielmi in there as well. We've seen him quite active combination with uh, Jesper a few times in this Vuelta for uh, Arkea. We've got Soler once again in the breakaway for UAE, Fernandez and Navarro as well. The man, uh, the myth, the legend that we spoke about in a few episodes ago about his old days with Contador back in the day. Anyway, his breakaway... Kept the gap for a bit, but it became clear once we got to the foot of the Puerto de Navacerada that other teams weren't happy with that. A Movistar wants to get a rider up front, and they clearly wanted to do so. They tried multiple times with, I think, uh, an Oliveira, a Verona, but also with Mulberger, who became the rider that was most prominent in trying to get Movistar riders in the breakaway, as he kept on pacing this entire Navacerada, like a bit in front of, in front of the peloton. Then I think Mater joined them as well, and some other riders tried to join them as well. And we had a, a larger group starting to create behind that 
front group that I spoke about earlier. And this larger group had quite a decent amount of good riders, like a Nibli, like a De La Cruz, two riders for Astana, potential satellite riders. Higita for Bora will play a role in today's episode. Stage, <laughs> same stuff. Polon's in there for UAE, so two riders now up the road for UAE in each one per breakaway. Then we see riders like Volverde was one of the last ones to bridge up to the second breakaway as well. Carapaz, Pino, Reichenbach, Garfi, Herada. And I think those are the most important names in this group. Yeah, I'd rate that. Mankeys as well. That's also a very important name. And why is that an important name? We spoke about him yesterday. He's 11th in GC. He's close to the top 10. He wants to get into that top 10 by going the breakaway today. He succeeds by being in that second group. And the peloton lets it go for a bit. Because Quickstep doesn't care about Mankeys being in the breakaway. There's no one else dangerous in GC in that breakaway. But Movistar has two satellite riders in Valverde and Mulberger. And that's something that Quickstep probably does care about. They tried a few times to get one of their riders in the breakaway Quickstep, but they kept on just forming a train at the front of the peloton. Then once we got to the top of the Navacerada climb, there were some moments where even the only had one rider left on that climb, but towards the end of the descent afterwards, they were with five again or something. So they were just fine. And a different team came to the front. And it's Bora. They were uh, trying to defend the 10th position of Hindley by keeping the breakaway close and I'd argue I want to personally thank Bora for making the stage more important because I think that if Bora doesn't pace at this point in the race that we get a breakaway of 9 to 10 minutes until another team picks up that is also defending a top 10 position and this created the occasion that we also had on the stage at Evenepoel won a few days ago where the breakaway being up the road caused the team to pace in the peloton, and that created the mechanic that the peloton stayed relatively close, and there was always a chance that the breakaway ends up winning the stage as a consequence. And that's what I mean with wanting to thank Bora. That adds entertainment to stages like this, so I'm happy with that. Now, we're moving into the, the second half of the stage. First of all, are you surprised that Bora is doing this in the peloton, pacing, defending that? Hindley position, knowing that they've got Higita in the breakaway as a potential stage win? I mean, yeah, to be honest, it's very, it's the opposite of Ineos, right? Ineos didn't, like, I'm not going to say they didn't care about Rodriguez fifth, but they held it in yeah. perspective with fifth is not first, it's not even third, and the prospects of moving up are limited. We're not in a relegation battle either, where two spots matters for a lot of UCI points. And we're not going to, this is Ineos, we're not going to in any way diminish Carapaz's chance of winning another stage or KOM uh, because of Rodriguez. So Rodriguez was left with Gagan Hart today. Gagan Hart helped him a lot. He was dropping early on the later climbs. Uh, Bora, yeah, they didn't have, well, Kelderman, yeah, worked for Hindley. I don't know. I was, it, it in the end, you say, oh, the break one, Higita just got dropped. But it actually, in the end, you'll see that the pressure of the peloton forced Higita to make a lot of mistakes that um, eventually got preyed upon. So I was surprised, um, to be honest. But I guess if, you know, Henley wanted to defend the top 10 and he's ridden around for three weeks. So, yeah. You've basically mentioned it. It became a situation that got worse once we had moves happening in that second group. That front breakaway we spoke about was determined to just become Soler and Stannard. Then instead of the six-man group it was, the rest got dropped. Stannard had been taking all the KOM points, but obviously 
Karapal's in that second group, not happy with that. He wants to defend his KOM jersey, so he tries to bridge towards the front of the race, and he does so with Higita with him. And those two riders, together with Mankeys, those three riders, bridge up towards Solaire and Stannard and actually drop both of them. So Karapas is at this point basically secure when it comes to KOM because if Stannard is behind Karapas, Karapas is definitely going to take more points than, uh, than Stannard is from this point onward. And that's where that mechanic comes in even more, that group dynamic that you mentioned earlier, the fact that Bora versus Mankeys played into effect because now we have a situation where three riders up the road, Karapas, Mankeys, and Higita, and Higita can't ride anymore. Higita's not allowed to ride anymore because they got to make sure that Hindley can get close to the front group. And that was a bit chaotic in that front group, I, I'd say, right? Yeah, Menkes and Carapaz were pulling. Carapaz wasn't too happy with Higita sitting there. Higita's got the best sprint of those three. They're allowing the peloton to come to 130. And I'll get to Movistar in a second. But a word on our show partner, Zwift. The Zwift Hub is on sale from the 3rd of October. If you want to check it out, go to Zwift.com to sign up for notifications or to be on the uh, list for pre-ordering. This trainer is cheaper and easier to set up than any comparable trainer on the market coming pre-installed with a cassette of your choice so swift are not only making changes to the software being able to race your segment personal bests with your pb ghosts uh launching soon they're also changing this uh trainer hardware game launching from the 3rd of october so if you want to check it out go to zwift.com or zwift's youtube channel which indeed has a number of helpful youtube videos about getting on zwift or setting up the zwift hub if and when you get it but yeah movistar started pacing more cuera i'm not sure if i've skipped forward too much um after kelderman pulled off they yeah they were trying to set up a mass attack a last ditch attack to try and test remco last throw of the dice uh van wilder had been dropped verona was pacing really hard and um yeah must tried and it didn't work so <laughs> <laughs> it was uh uae i can't remember what i know almeida was going back looking okay i can't remember if i used so attacked lopez or Marson moquera i can't remember if he did yeah he did at least once he uh, used a try towards the end of moquera get something in there as well try to put a bit of an attack in, but there's also the aspect that he knows that Almeida's behind. Rodriguez is behind that. Rodriguez is losing time to Almeida, so virtually Almeida's now jumping over Rodriguez, or in this case, Rodriguez, unfortunately, and is losing his top five there, Rodriguez, to Almeida. Now, that situation kept on developing where Almeida called back up to Ayuso, I'm pretty sure, that group at least, and... I swear that Lopez started to become the rider that was doing some stuff as well towards the end of this climb and also on the next climb where he was the one attacking. And like when we look at Lopez in the general classification, like he's still like ages behind the user. He needs like 50 seconds, but it's cool to see that he was at least trying as well in this situation. He's also trying to get that must ride one more time, I'm pretty sure. But there's also the aspect that the satellite riders from the front kept coming back to the group as well. So I think... First of all, Mulberger dropped for Movistar. Wolf of Verde was still trying to mingle with the breakaway, but wasn't succeeding in that aspect. And I think when it comes to UAE, we had both Soler and Pulans dropping in the next 10 to 20 kilometers each, and therefore also joining the group with Almeida and Ayuso. And like, 
We're coming into the situation now between the Morcuera and that final climb, the Kotos, and it felt to me like the tempo just died, completely died, and Rodriguez was able to come back to the group. And I was somewhat surprised I expected an Almeida to keep on pacing, perhaps, in this valley to keep Rodriguez behind, or do you think it's okay to do that, knowing that Rodriguez will likely drop on the next climb anyway? I guess, well, I wanted a Uso to go for the stage when he's got the best flat sprint to this group, in my opinion, quicker than Remco, Maas, O'Connor, Hindley. Um, but they waited for Soler and Polans to come back. I guess that was the plan because Aaronsman was not that far behind Almeida. So Rodriguez fifth, Almeida sixth, Aaronsman seventh. Uh, so Almeida, I guess, doesn't want to open himself up to Aaronsman attacking yeah. him. Aaronsman was making the groups of four when attacks went on Morquera. He's really good on this sort of gradient. Um, so I guess that was the philosophy. If he starts pacing at 35Ks to go, that's or 20, nah, 28Ks, 25Ks to go, he opens himself up to Aaronsman. That was a problem later. Uh, so Carapaz and Aguita, it looked like, I reckon it was a... Um, a Spanish speaker's plan, although I'm not sure if Menke speaks Spanish. Carap <laughs> so basically, Carapaz like this is South African. He well, he lives in Andorra. Um, they okay. <laughs> Carapaz attacks ahead. Why does he do that? Because Igita is just sabotaging this group, and they want to get rid of Menke's. And he would rather Igita pulls with him and than Menke's. So he attacks ahead. Igita. Bridges across, like attacks Menkes behind once the gap is formed a bit and drops Menkes. And he gets across to Carapaz. And then Carapaz, he doesn't pull through Igitas immediately. Carapaz shouts at him so much, saying, Get on the front, start pulling. Because Menkes is dropped now. Igita has no excuse. So immediately, Carapaz starts working Igita, just like working him over getting him to spend as much as he can out of him. He's got the group pressuring behind Soler. Polans did a really good job. I can't remember if Almeida... No, Almeida started pacing on the last proper climb, for, I think because Rodriguez was dropped. I'm not going to say it was for the Ayuso stage win, um, <laughs> unfortunately, for Ayuso. <laughs> and... The gap is shortening, it's shortening, it's 25 seconds, I think, it's down to 20 seconds before Egita keeps, like, stop-start attacking. And at this point, I actually thought Egita should have stopped. He should have stopped at 20 seconds to recover and trust his sprint from the GC group. Instead, he kind of gives Carapaz a little bit more close to the top, and then Carapaz hits him and opens that gap straight back up to 20 seconds, and our mate is just pulling behind. So, again, Benji... Like Carapaz, his strike rate from these breakaways, just the way he plays them is is so impressive. The way he keeps working guys over, yeah, it's it's really clever. He's like working over the riders that he's with. For example, he's in these situations because he anticipates what's coming in those breakaways. But it's also, I think, it Loki helped him today that he had to go for KOM as well because let's say he doesn't bridge towards Stannard and Solera up there. He makes that bridge because Stannard is a danger for his KOM. So sometimes riders might be too defensive in a second group, in a larger second group, and therefore not arrive at the front in time. In this specific scenario, he had to go because he needed to defend his KOM. So I think that played into his cards quite well. But when it comes to Carapaz up front, there was also an intrigue where 
the Peloton group, well, I can't call it the Peloton anymore, the GC group, Group Evenepoel, was coming closer, like you mentioned, with an Almeida pacing. Uh, at a, I don't know if it was completely full. I felt like at moments it was full, but at certain moments it wasn't. It was a combination of the two, but I, I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt today. He was riding for Rodriguez behind. He was also riding for Ayuso at a certain point because I, I can't believe that with a minute gap on, on Rodriguez behind that he was going to keep up pacing the same way that he that he was doing in the last three kilometers beforehand. So I, I think there's at least some aspect in there where it was somewhat for Ayuso. But the change know. to me was a bit later. And it is when Adensmann went. Adensmann decided to attack in that second group. And that's when Almeida's reaction felt out to me. Because then he kind of like stopped pacing. For I, a bit, yeah. Right? Well, I don't know if he was spent it's you know he, he might have been on the limit it's hard to know with Almeida like difficult rider to yep. assess um the gaps Rodriguez was stale but yeah Aronson's threatening his position now trying to leapfrog into fifth and Ayuso goes to the front and all the Portuguese fans I don't want to hear it again on Twitter about like Ayuso selling Almeida he gets straight on the front and keeps the gap stable to Aronsman. And the stage win is gone because Carapaz never brought back. This plateau was quite fast until the uphill false flat finish where he actually did lose some to the Aronsman sort of big ring, big guy, gained another five, six seconds, but it was too late. Carapaz timed it perfectly, wins again by eight seconds from a runner from the GC group behind. He won on Pandera by, it's not loading up, Eight seconds yes. as well. Eight seconds as well. So <laughs> single digits both times. What timing. And I think this is, sorry to your boy, Benji, I think it's a worthy trade-off. I know that's it's horrible, but Rodriguez goes from fifth to seventh. Oh, actually, <laughs> Rodriguez loses that on sixth by one second to Aronsman. Uh, no changes in the top four. Uh, Evan Paul Mas, Ayuso, the podium, Lopez fourth, uh, Almeida moves to fifth. Aronsman, as I said, into sixth, one second ahead of Rodriguez, O'Connor, Uran, uh, Hindley, eight, nine, ten. I thought Uran might lose a spot. I must have been incorrect. Um, what do you think about Ineos and what they did to your boy today? I'm not totally offended by it. I'll be honest. Now, with Carapaz, there's the aspect that he's now won three stages and the KOM jersey. I, that's a pretty damn good ground tour for someone that was a podium candidate, but wasn't necessarily looking the greatest podium candidate going into this Vuelta in the first place. So having him right into form throughout the ground tour, winning three stages in KOM is great for Ineos. But GC-wise, losing fifth to seventh, I don't mind what they did today, and the reason is that I think Rodriguez loses his fifth position anyway, in my opinion, regardless of Carapaz being head or not. I believe that's the case, and maybe losing sixth would not happen in that case, but I don't care if you're sixth or seventh, it's a top ten in GC. Like, fifth would have been a difference, but sixth or seventh, I don't care about the difference, and neither should Carlos Rodriguez. He should be proud. He crashed on his face. He got injured because of it. And he brought home a top 10 in GC in the first Grand Tour he does after having a wonderful progression in the last few years. And the same counts for the other youngster. 
your boy, Juan Ayuso, 19 years old. I think it's since 1935 that a rider of this age has been on the podium of a Grand Tour. What do you have to say for yourself? About Ayuso, I just think he was too selfless today. I think he... <laughs> he, he really should have. This would have completed the Pagacha prophecy, right? Winning the last stage, like Pagacha did on the last GC stage in 2019, coming third. Wow. Pagacha won three stages. Oh, you won three. <laughs> yeah, but that was when him Small and Roglic were like, you know, Slovenian friends um, back then. So the. Yeah, I mean, Pagaccio is pretty good, so I'm not going to say Ayuso is as good as him, but it's been a pretty good welter from Ayuso. I mean, the climbing performances maybe have been better from him in some of the stages, not all of them, than Pagaccio in uh, 2019. So, I don't know, great performance from him. Third, of course, Sivakov COVID, Roglic crashed out. Um, That being said, you've got to be in it to win it. And a 19-year-old on the podium is just, yeah, it's just crazy. And even with just kind of doing his own thing too. But the winner, Benji, the prophecy, the true one, it's half foretold. He uh, said, or I believe, believed he would win the Tour de France one day after his junior years, the World Championships, and he's now won the Vuelta, his second Grand Tour, his first proper preparation for one. Wins it comfortably, even a pole by 205, crying after the finish. He didn't have any teammates in the final of this or indeed in some other stages like, uh, oh, Nevada, he did Pandera. Van Wilder kind of cracked him. This we saw an outpouring of emotion afterwards for even a pole. Benji, there was a lot of pressure on him. Remco, do you have the feeling of a mission accomplished? Yes, uh, well, I don't know what's going uh, through my head and my body right now. It's it's amazing. Uh, all all the, the the critics I got, all the you know, all the bad comments since uh, for last year. I think I uh, I finally delivered, and I can I answer to everybody with my pedals. And uh, I mean, I've been working so hard to come here in the best shape as possible and to now win to now win this world is is just uh yeah it's amazing it's actually my first grand tour starting healthy so uh i'm really happy to to be the first guy to win a a grand tour for patrick as a ceo and uh again for belgium just for my country for my teammates you know and for my parents for my father for my fiance you know I've been away from home so many hours, so many days, so many weeks, so many months. And now, uh, yeah, it's just all thanks to them as well. And uh, I was really stressed this morning. Maybe I didn't show it, but I was really stressed. I didn't sleep too much yesterday night because, yeah, you just know what's what's coming to you. And uh, it was a super tough stage. But, yeah, I'm just super happy uh, that I won La Vuelta. Tell us, uh, tactically, how did you achieve this today? How did you react to your adversaries? Just with the legs. I didn't even think about winning a stage. I just wanted to win the, the general classification. And I only had to follow and, and uh, control and, and believe in my power. And uh, in the end, the race was super hard. Uh, but we did very well. So 
I just cannot say anything more, actually. You said this morning that this was the most important day of your life. Is this now the most beautiful day of your life? Yes. But there is more to come. Sorry? But there is much more to come. I hope so. Uh, actually, it's, uh, it's an amazing year, you know. Winning a monument, winning San Sebastian again, winning uh, two stages and then the GC, and then getting married in the winter. I think it's the best year I can, I can imagine and wish for. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, he can't have done anything more than this. This was as close to a flawless performance as possible, and I'm still putting the Pandera wobble down to the crash rather than some problem with, I don't know, his ability to climb mountains. It's not even that big of a deal if it, for example, isn't related to the crash. The crash could have influenced it. It could have been the reason for it. If it isn't, well, he only lost the middle on his worst day on a Grand Tour. So I'd say that Remco Evenpool should be really proud, and I think everybody around him should also be proud of his performance here, winning La Vuelta at the age of 22. That is the first time in 44 years for me as a Belgian that we've got a Grand Tour winner, so that is absolutely spectacular. Obviously, bar any crashes or anything happening in Stage 21, but I don't want to think about that. Now, the thing with Remco is... I've always felt like he's had immense pressure put upon him since he was in the juniors. Like, immediately he was labeled as the new Eddie Merricks back in the day. I don't, I don't care about those nicknames. He shouldn't have cared about them either, but the media put that on him big time back in the day. And I feel like when it comes to him as a person next to the bike, he's been polarizing a bit, as in some people hate him, some people love him. It's like a 50-50 thing. I hope that it leans towards people loving him more than hating him because I'd argue he doesn't deserve most of the hate that he gets. I think he gets pulled out of context a lot and so forth. And every single time that someone says something that this man can't do, a year later, he proves them wrong. And he couldn't ride on steep hills. He couldn't ride on, ride on long climbs. He, he couldn't finish a Grand Tour three weeks without collapsing completely at some point. He's misproven every single myth that was thrown at him except for Roubaix cobbles that's one that I'm not certain about <laughs> want to see it but when it comes to his Grand Tour scenario here he brought it out perfectly and yeah towards week three he was rather defensive but that's what you need to do you need to defend your red jersey you don't need to overextend to make sure that people can't counter you as a consequence and I think he did it perfectly now a lot of people will say oh Roglic wasn't here and so forth I personally don't think Roglic would have beaten Remco Evenepoel, regardless of finishing this Grand Tour. If Roglic doesn't crash, I don't see him beating Remco Evenepoel here. That's my personal take on it. Whether you like that or not, I don't know. Is that also your opinion? No. I think peak Roglic and Koos, decent chance they beat him. Yeah, but... Sierra it wasn't Nevada. peak Roglic either, you know? I know, I know, but th th these are all hypotheticals. Like... The Roglic crashing out, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it would have made the third week more exciting, but the Roglic, of course, Roglic on stage four won the stage with exceptional three-minute, two-minute power, destroyed Pedersen, and so, but then two days later got 90 seconds put him to him on Pico Hano over 30 minutes. So him being good on stage 16 with a two, three-minute power performance, and we without the flat, maybe having a pole is with him anyway. Does that mean he's going to drop drop him and destroy him on Mulquera today? I don't know. Um, I do think with Coos and peak Roglic, with a proper preparation, without the injury from the Tour de France, 
Um, I would have leaned towards them, to be honest, because Pandera, if you have Coos pacing that, Pandera, what's peculiar on Pandera weren't good, like compared to week one. And if Pete Roach is there with Coos lighting it up, we're talking big time there. And then the TT is better. So, but that's, it's all, it doesn't matter. But I do think, um, but, you know, Roach might have also crashed himself out, even if he was in peak shape. And that brings up a question that I do want to bring up now is like, we've seen that MQA in a pool, win La Vuelta España, again, bar any crashes and punctures on stage 21, we don't want to talk about it. On paper, he's won La Vuelta. What are the next steps for them, Kuevenepoel? Are the next plans that he goes to the Giro, to the Tour afterwards? I think that Patrick Lefebvre, on an interview, a long read interview, said that the Tour de France would not be for 2023, that it would be for a 2024 thing, but that they will still talk about it at the end of the year and see if it's a possibility. They'll still talk about it. It's not like 100% done. Does that mean that he does the Giro next year and so forth? And I've got a simple take on it. You shouldn't decide now what Grand Tour you're going to ride. Yeah, you should wait no. until the parkours come out. <laughs> if a parkour comes out for the Tour de France, but it's not a single time trial kilometer, don't send him to the Tour. If it's 100 kilometer time trial kilometers, send them to the Tour. If it's balanced, then you can choose based on what you want when it comes to your pathway as a rider. If you want to build up the Vuelta Giro Tour, stuff like that only if it's like a balanced thing i think the parkour matters a lot and all these questions are irrelevant until the parkour comes out what's your take uh, i agree it always shocks me i mean benji people were saying rampas in humanas about the vuelta when it was two weeks before the race and it's like <laughs> every climb is five yeah. percent poor enric mass Diamonds in the legs, we'll get to him in a second, but he's dealing with 5% all day in the third week. Um, but yeah, obviously the Tour de France is, I think, the tour he has to do um, next year. I didn't understand the Melier signing. I thought, why would you sign Melier when Remco, like, I think, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I still don't know if Lefebvre knows how good Avonapol is, like really understands how good the okay. Picohano performance was. Like, will he be brave enough to send a quick step squad without a sprinter to the tour with no Jakobsen? Yeah. Or will he be, hedge his bets, send Alaphilippe, Avonapol, Lampart, Jakobsen to Clerk and send a four and four squad, which isn't a bad thing. The rulers can help Avonapol in the tour too, but, yeah. you know, does he miss out? Viveika, like, so I'm not sh- I would be surprised even if Avonapol does the tour, which say the Giro follows its trend of two, col- two time trial kilometers next year and the tour has 60 Um. I would send, obviously, Remco to the Tour. He should go. He's their best rider. Um, but I worry that they won't send a fully full GC team. I think next to that, I want to add that when it comes to Remco even a pool in a Tour de France, for example, I don't think Remco's progression necessarily from here towards that Tour de France is as important as the progression of Quickstep as a team, like you mentioned, towards that Grand Tour. Because Quickstep in this Vuelta controlled nicely. But this Vuelta did not have teams of the caliber of a, a Tour de France Jumbo Visma with Van Aert as super domestiques and so forth, a Sepp Cousin and so forth. That's not in this Vuelta, for example. So 
if you put this team against the Jumbo team of the Tour in the Tour de France, it's unlikely to me that Remco Evenpool comes out on top because the team dynamic will be very important in that aspect. So I think it will be vital for that Tour de France in the future that Quickstep becomes stronger. And maybe there's some reasoning there in the mindset of Patrick Lefebvre that he thinks, I don't want to send him to the Tour yet because I think that at the Giro he has a better chance with the team that we have and we need another transfer season to get better climbers. Maybe that's the dynamic that he has in his head, the thought process behind the tour being in 2024 in his head for Patrick. Like, that's how I see it. What's your take, other Patrick? Um, yeah, I see it. And maybe, oh, I don't want to expose him to too much pressure, but he's won the Vuelta now. And maybe there's yeah. like less less haters or doubters. Um, I sort of, I get what you're saying in that maybe the transfer period was a bit soft for the people they needed for 2023. And now you win the Vuelta. Now, I, I don't know whether this could happen. They can go to the sponsors and be like, hey, we need to get X rider <laughs> who's out of contract in 2024, yeah. a luxury domestique. Um, you know, can would you be... Would you be happy to pay for it or pay extra so Remco can go to the Tour in 24? And you're right. In the Giro, this quick-step team and with Jan Hirt coming over too is absolutely fine. It's quite a good team. So um, I don't know about Alaphilippe. You've got to remember he crashed out. Alaphilippe was extremely good in this race. His shape was improving. Uh, can Evinapol win the Giro? Of course. Um, the maybe wet descents or unfamiliar dangerous descent. Still a question mark I have if he gets uncomfortable. The yeah. colder conditions I think suit him. 15, 20 degrees I think is much, much better for him than uh, very hot. I still think that. And the tour this year was just scorching hot. And Roglic and Vingegaard in extremely hot conditions are untouchable. So... That's it's, it's all. There's no need to make these big proclamations, as you said, Benji. See the parkour. See who's going to what. Make a sensible decision about what suits best. That being said, Merlier and Jakobsen, that's two big sprinters. So I wonder if, like, they better not send to the Giro with half a sprint train. Then I'll be like, what, what are you guys <laughs> doing? Um, but yeah, good for him. Um, it's a big win, big for Belgium and. Also, this year, Benji, Henley, Pagacha, no, for Jesus, Henley, Vingegaard, I'm cooked. My uh, <laughs> speaking, speaking of hot conditions, I've got terrible, terrible sunburn. My mind is gone. Henley, Vingegaard, <laughs> I forgot, I forgot the guy. <laughs> the one the tour only, only worked on. Um, Henley, Vingegaard, Renko, <laughs> who would have thought? No, no, Pagacha or or Roglic winning a Grand Tour in 2022. Well, so. you did mention it at the start of the year, I think. You said that I think Remco Evenepoel would podium. Was that your take? I said Remco would podium. I said UAE wouldn't podium a Grand Tour, I think. Um, and they did podium <laughs> too. So... And I'm not going to say it was lucky that Pog, I think, had six minutes to Thomas in third. But, um, but yeah, they they got a lot. They Do they have a lot to sort of take back to the drawing board? I mean, UAE, 
I'm not sure that's true. You just had a 19-year-old podium the Vuelta on his first Grand Tour. Like, that's yeah. unreal from Ayuso. It's actually, perversely, without winning a Grand Tour, it's actually, I think, been a fairly positive year for them. Soler winning a stage, Almeida... Uh, made a looking more the domestique role to me. I think there's going to be, yeah, that's just quickly. Do you think next year in the pecking order, Ayuso is clearly above Almeida? I think so as well in the future, to be honest. I, I fear that this might've been maybe not the last Grand Tour that Almeida has a co-leader role assigned to him, because I still believe it's valuable to have Almeida, Almeida, <laughs> That's something new. <laughs> Almeida, that's his name. Arsenal I was uh, looking at Classica Almeria, I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Almeida, having him as a co-leader is always valuable in GC, I think, for the initial part of a Grand Tour, and you can still put pressure with that. So I have no issue with that. But I do think in like a Tour de France that a Pogacar is leader, that an Iuso is honestly above him in my opinion. And he did say that his legs weren't great in this Vuelta. To be honest, if he can top 10 a ground tour, they're probably pretty decent. But if his legs actually weren't great and he can do better than this, then he has, still has time to prove in one-week races that he's better than this before a ground tour starts next year. So Sivakov proved it in Burgos before the Vuelta and got a leadership role. So you never know. I think it's possible that he proves it. But I also think that next year is the year that Bogacar is going to ride two ground tours. Although I've been saying that for two years straight, I think next year is the one where that matters. Now... We've spoken about a lot of GC stuff, and I want to bring it up again because tomorrow's stage, going from Las Rosas to Madrid, we know the, the typical final sprint stage in a Vuelta. About that, there's an intermediate sprint in there. And you mentioned that Adansman and Rodriguez are now one second from each other in GC. Do you see a possibility where we see a sprint at the intermediate sprint, 47th spot, spot in GC? They, ha- they have to. They have to. There's no... Like the Madrid stage is not formally a procession stage like the tour, right? Like even if it was the tour and there was one second, I would say go for it. Like I think like the procession is, you know, kind of BS to be honest, but it is what it is. But if if I could move up, if I was the DS, um, if I was on that plane, then uh, I would say you have to go for it. Rodriguez, I mean, he might have a peak, peak sprint or peak, peak power of 600 watts and Aaronsman's a lot heavier and he's banged up but I'd love to see Plap, uh, Turner they could maybe they'll do can they do what Quickstep did to Wellens or who do they do it to in the golden kilometer in in, <laughs> in Bawasa yeah I, I'd love to see some complete shithousery from Ineos tomorrow it, oh. it'd make the stage much more exciting but we should give our picks for it uh Uphill little drag, I believe it is. Uh, Ackerman's won it before, but it is almost impossible to stray away from Mads Pedersen. I'm going to go with Ackerman, who I think it might be a bit of value. I'm going to go full Belgian mode because Evenepoel won the Vuelta a España. I cannot deny the myth, the man, the legend that finishes his first Grand Tour, as in the first Grand Tour that he finishes. Vermeer is finishing <laughs> his Grand Tour. Vermeer is lead out? You were going to go for his lead out over Merlier? <laughs> yes, it's slightly uphill, this finish. Like, are you sure Merlier can it. get over it? 
<laughs> All right, he's got Fuck it. it. He, he has to be so motivated. And Pedersen's won three stages. Yes, he's got the green jersey. Is he going to like Wout van Aert didn't even contest the Champs Elysees sprint? Does this Melier has to be so cheated up for this sprint? Uh, but yeah, I like Ackerman for it. Milano's. I'm not sure if he's still here. Uh, he has to. He has to get this right. Anyway, uh, what was I going to say? Curious. Uh, Vuelta, we'll do the full recap on Monday. But yeah, guys with three stage wins, Carapaz, Pedersen, Vine had two. Anyway, uh, that's all from the Vuelta today. We'll have the recap of the last stage tomorrow and then the full recap on Monday, as I said. But the other news was after we recorded the podcast yesterday, of course, the UCI released a statement or a press release saying they do wish to proceed with uh, relegation contrary to media reports which was the cycling news article from Stephen Ferrand I believe now that article wasn't just five lines of t- to me at least I don't like I don't know the sources or whatever but to me that article didn't look like five lines of something overheard at the start of a race from two riders talking rubbish it was quite a long piece yeah. an exclusive they you know, posted it everywhere and made a big deal out of it, got a lot of traction. I mean, I don't know. It, it seemed like I'd be very surprised um, going into the bat for the Capital J journalists here. I'd be very surprised if that article was written based on nothing. He must have spoken to a DS, a manager, or someone at the UCI. So whilst the UCI say, no, we're proceeding with it, I don't. I don't know if I truly believe that they haven't considered that relegation uh, might be suspended or not implemented. What do you think? I think they probably have had it brought up to them, certainly. I also think that there might have been an internal consideration and so forth that no conclusion came from and that they perhaps don't want to have any public doubts about whether it's going to be implemented or not. They want to make it very clear instantly after that news to make sure that all teams know instantly that that thing isn't real in that eye. Like, let's say that Cycling News comes out with that article and me as a manager, I read that and I'm like, okay, fine. Then I'm not going to try and go for points in these races anymore. She's going to go for the win again. I think UCAI's role is also that they are responsible for making sure that the rules are clear. So I'm very happy that they are immediately responding to stuff like that by making it clear what the rules are, and what's going to happen, right? That's also an aspect to it, right? Why they would respond so quickly in the same afternoon? I guess because then if it's not going to be implemented, then all these other races, like do they still – you don't want say – you, say you do follow through with it and a team takes its foot off the gas because they think it's going to be suspended, which would be an incredibly stupid thing to do. But yeah. say they did, and then they implement it, and they're like, oh, but yeah. we, you, you said in September there were reports that it's not being implemented. We didn't keep fighting for points. Um, anyway, of course, I said in the podcast yesterday, and I still stand behind it, that uh, there's two options. Both are not great, um, but that doesn't mean you should pick the worst option, which is implementing a broken, terrible system in a pandemic and unfair circumstances. Uh, the UCI says they wish to proceed with that. That's their decision. Um, and I think it depends who gets relegated. <laughs> they are opening themselves up. Like first first exhibit in the – if EF got relegated, first exhibit to, to the CAS is 
that article with the statement from Faminard in Classics saying they excluded EF. <laughs> um, and thanks, Lotto, for sponsoring the race. Like, what a joke. There's also the aspect that you've got national teams now selecting teams based on the fact that certain trade teams, the normal teams that you look at in normal races, like in Ineos and so forth, I think Kofidis and Movistar are not releasing certain riders because they want to fight for the points to the Spanish team, for example. Imagine if it like gets cancelled, the whole relegation thing, that 20 teams next year, but it's done like after the national selections are out. So all these national teams would have been announced with like half the riders that they wanted to have in the, in the first time around with pro team riders involved, stuff like that, just to then hear after doing the national selections, well, sorry guys, we're cancelling the ride. That would also be like a next level thing happening, right? It's, yeah, it's going to be a mess and it already is and already some of the perverse <laughs> and bizarre decisions people are making, like people acting like Australia's the fucking moon. Like <laughs> they can't go to Australia for world champs, even if they're a top 10 favourite for huge points. They're like, no, nah, we've got to stay and do Copper Bernocchi or I don't know um, what races conflict with world championships that some of these guys might be doing. It's all very curious to me. Um yeah, but what a mess. Um, and it's just going to, if they implement it off-season, great content for us. But unfortunately for the people involved, it's very <laughs> messy and, and livelihoods and teams are at stake. So it is, it is unfortunate. Anyway, that's all from us. We'll be back tomorrow as usual, as well as the Montreal Classic Roundup late on Sunday night. If you didn't catch Quebec's Roundup yesterday, go and check that out and we'll see you then. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 